chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 1, uh, he's talking to the church at Sardis. And about halfway down of the verse, he says, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Well, that's a shock. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. So the reputation even doesn't match up with the reality of the things. And then, of course, we know about the church at Laodicea. And these are just three of the seven. In chapter 3, verse 17, you say, church's view, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's a very different picture of the reality that was, that was the, the truth about where these people were. So that's why I'm asking you, how do you know what you look like? Uh, we may be going along thinking we're doing great, we're doing fine, but how would Jesus, who is the truth himself, how would he look at it, at us, and would he see us in a different light? We may be like the church there at Smyrna and think, man, I'm, I'm poor, I don't have anything, you know, what do I have to offer? And Jesus is saying, hey, you're rich, you're strong, you're valuable, you have something that you can contribute here your talents and your gifts, the way God can use you. So it can work either way. And so the idea is that we need to understand who we are in the presence of the Lord. Paul talks about it a little bit in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're all familiar with this chapter. This is the chapter on love. And he's describing to us the love of God, and he's saying that this is the kind of love that we are supposed to have for one another. And what he says there is the love of Christ is greater and more important than all the gifts. All the gifts of the Spirit. The love of Christ is more important than gifts. And he tells you that, doesn't he? He says, if I have the speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, it's just a noise. If I have all faith so I can move mountains but have not love, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything. If I dedicate my body to be burned and have not love, it doesn't help at all. It profits me nothing. And so he's saying this love of Christ, it's foundational and it's the most important thing. More important than gifts, more important than what we have or what we do. It's what we are. If the love of Christ is within our heart. And then he talks about... Um, he says, love never fails. He says, there'll, there'll be a time when prophecies come to an end because when Jesus comes back, the fulfillment of all things is there. And he says, whether there are tongues, they're going to be stopped. They'll still be stilled. If there's knowledge, it will pass away because everybody will be on the same level and have the same understanding. And he says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reason like a child. He didn't say it, but he could have put, I acted like a child. But when I became full grown, I put away childish things. Some of us haven't gotten there yet. We're still thinking, still reasoning, still acting in an immature way. And so Paul is writing this to the church. And so he says in verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror like the one that was dirty that you couldn't see real well, 
like the bronze that's polished. It's a poor reflection. Um, you got to get a general idea, but that's it. We see through a, a, a poor reflection in a mirror. Actually, he says it's like a riddle. Uh, the word is enigma. It's like an enigma that we're looking at here. It's hard to understand. Now I know in part, all of us, all of us, our knowledge, as great as it is, no matter what our potential is, it will always be a knowledge in part. There's always more for us to learn because God is an infinite God and we are finite. And um, I don't know, some of you may have seen the advertisements for some movie is coming out uh, about uh, um, the potential of the mind. They get this girl and they do some kind of stuff to her and all of a sudden she starts being able to use her mind and they're telling all these great things that she can do. Um, Even if she used 100% of her mind, she still would not fully understand God. And the point is, because we're finite creatures, the finite can never comprehend or encompass the infinite. So God will always be God. So we don't have to be threatened by learning or education or any of the things of science, true science. So he says, now we only know in part, but then... I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Now, John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3, the letter to, first letter of John, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And again, he's talking about the love of Christ given us by God. So he says, He starts off in verse 1 talking about how great the love of God is, the love of the Father. And he, he lavished, poured out abundantly, more than we could ever use, more than was necessary. He just keeps pouring out, giving and giving and giving. Um, The love that he has given us, that we should be called children of God. Uh, That's an amazing statement, that we can be called children. God's children. Um, So Jesus, we know, is Son of God. And He tells us, He's given us that kind of love and mercy that we could all be called children of God, and that is what we are. And then He says, Dear friends, in verse 2, Now, now, today, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known because God is still working on us redeeming us, cleansing us, purifying us, making us more and more into the image of Christ. So what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So if I took this mirror out and I held it in front of each person here, would the image in the mirror be the same? No. When Jesus appears, we know that we will be like him. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. Does that mean we're all going to look like him? Are we all going to be males? Are we all going to have, depending on your artist's depiction of Jesus, long hair and beard? Uh, Some of us are going to have trouble with the long hair. (laughs) No, it doesn't mean that physically we're going to be like him, but what it means is 
Each one of us, to the potential that God created us, will be exactly like Jesus. And together, as we come together as the body of Christ, we will have the same characteristics, the same purity, uh, the same closeness that Jesus died for us to have. We are his children. Uh, separate from, but like. So we went around, if we went around and we took some of these kids and we started looking at them and we had the parents up here, for most of them, you could tell which kid belongs to which parents. You can tell, can't you? Sometimes we can see it in the way that they look. Sometimes we can see it in the way that they act. They're like their parents. They're characteristics of their father and mother you see in the children. And that's what Jesus is doing within us. Uh, there should be the family likeness in you and me. People should be able to see Jesus in us. Um, his characteristics through us. And that's what Paul and John are talking about. Now the question comes, how does that get from where we are to what we're going to be? So if you could say, okay, this is what the cat is, but this is the potential for what he can become. Right? So this is us, and this is Christ. We should be able to see some similarities. This is what we are. This is what we are to become. How do we get there? How does this kitten go from this self-portrait to this self-portrait? How does that happen? Paul talks to us and tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about transformation. Now, transformation goes way beyond reformation. You know, formation, that's when you're created and, and made. Reformation is a reforming, a remaking. Transformation is a, an entirely new thing altogether. Um, the church, back in the Middle Ages, needed change because of certain corruptions that had crept in and because... The church, as always, is filled with sinful people. And even the best of the best are still sinful people. So all of us never get beyond the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're always there. But what happens as we pray that prayer throughout our lifetime? Uh, there's a transformation that's taking place. It's more of him and less of us. And there's a continuous cleansing because the mercy of Christ is effective. And it begins to work within us from the inside, changing the desires of our heart, transforming us from the inside out. And so Paul is talking about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's comparing the glory of God revealed to Moses on top of Mount Sinai and what that did to him physically. Um, he was in the presence of God. He went twice, spent 40 days and 40 nights each time. During that 40 days, and then shortly right after that, another 40 days, nothing to eat, nothing to drink. You can't do that. Uh, 
You might be able to go 40 days without food. I promise you, you're not going to go 40 days without something to drink. You'll be dead 10 times over. Um, Moses did because he was in the presence of life. And when he came down, um, like this mirror, we saw this mirror in front of Pat's face. Well, the, the image there, that wasn't Pat. Pat was sitting in the chair. It was a reflected image. And that's what James and John uh, are talking about, uh, this mirror image, James and Paul and John. And what Paul says is that when Moses came down, and he's quoting here from Exodus, that literally the skin was radiating light, radiating light. Uh, he didn't even need a night light. He would just get up and every place would be illuminated that he went. Scared everybody half to death. But, you know, if somebody walked in the back door and they were radiating light out of their body, uh, it would get our attention, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be dull anymore. Nobody would be going to sleep or nobody would be thinking about supper, you know. I mean, they would have our full undivided attention. And so everybody ran away. So he had to put a veil across his face. But when he went into the presence of the Lord, then the veil was removed because he could not contribute anything more. All he could do is receive. But after a while, <clears throat> and this is the sad part, after a while, it was a fading glory. After a while, the light became less and less, and pretty soon he didn't need to wear a veil anymore at all. He just looked like a normal person. Paul says, for the Christian life, that whole process is going to be repeated in reverse. In other words, this is what he says, Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Don't have to worry with veils anymore, right? And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says that as we as Christians walk with Christ on a day-by-day -day basis, and the Holy Spirit is within us because of the, of the resurrection of Christ, and because he comes into us to enable us and transform us and to change us from within, what's taking place is that we are being changed from the inside, and that we are becoming more like Christ on a daily basis. And he says what happens is that as we begin to reflect the Lord's nature within us, more and more people will be able to see Christ in us. It'll be noticeable. Because when our desires change, then our actions change. When our desires change, our attitudes change. When our desires change, our thinking changes. And that affects our relationships. That affects uh, how we live our lives, it affects everything around us. And Paul is saying that as we're walking with Christ on a day-by-day -day basis, you can't do that unless you're walking with him in the same direction, uh, going and doing the same things. And as we're walking with Christ day-by-day, -day, he is changing us to be like him. And that's why the Holy Spirit has come, to form 
the life of Christ in each one of us. So John is right. Eventually, when we see him, the family resemblance will be very close. We will see him as he is, and we will discover we are like him because of what he's been doing in our hearts and lives. And that happens on a daily basis, here and now. This doesn't happen when, if we wait till we die, then we're in trouble because we won't be like him at all, will we? So that transformation begins the moment Christ comes into our life. If he is Lord of our life, that means he is in control. One of the big issues with people in this country is control issues. You know, we're so independent and told and taught to be so independent, we don't need anybody. And so, um, you know, if we go to church or part of a church, it makes no difference because I can be as close to God by myself, maybe better than if I'm here. Well, that may be true, but you'll never be complete. You can't be complete in isolation. So the Lord gives gifts of the Spirit. Where are you going to use the gift if you're by yourself? How's that gift going to be developed that he gives to you? Uh, it only happens, that growth only takes place in community. It can't take place anywhere else. It won't happen. So, it's that transformation that takes place on a daily basis here that, that makes the difference. So, there was a, they had a question for Jesus, and it involves um, this whole issue of power and control. It's in, we find it in Matthew 22. You'll be familiar with this. In Matthew 22, you've got some, some, an odd confederacy here. You've got um, some Pharisees and the Herodians. These were two different uh, political and religious parties, and they hated each other. They were opposed to everything each other fought and taught, for the most part, Herodians and Pharisees. But because they saw Jesus as such a threat, they got together. And they said, we will combine together and meet this common enemy, Jesus. He's a threat to us. So they got together and they said, we will make a public spectacle of him as he's out there teaching. We'll ask him a question and we will catch him. And so this was what was in their heart and in their minds. Um, Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with Herodians. And they come to Jesus and they give a flattering speech. Uh, we know you're a great teacher. You know you're a man of God. We know that you teach these things. And you're not worried about what people think and all of this kind of stuff. And then they hit him with the question. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, this is a political statement and a religious one and a social one. And they've got him set up now. Because like most things, political, social, or economic, whatever you do, somebody's going to be upset and it's going to be wrong, you know. They, um, in logic, they try, to put, they try to say it's the horns of a, of a dilemma. You've got a choice to make and uh, either way you, you make is going to be a bad one, so you've got to decide which is the worst of the two evils. And so you pick the less one and that's supposed to be the one that, that you... Jesus, they tried to do that several times. And uh, Jesus refused to play that game. And he refused to play this one. So he said, well, um, 
give me a coin that we would normally use to pay the tax with. And they brought him a coin, and he picked it up, and he held it up, and he said, uh, whose image and whose inscription is on this coin? Well, they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus told them, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. So whose picture is here? It's Caesar's. Then give the coin to Caesar. When God creates man and woman in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, what image, what picture is stamped indelibly in their DNA? Made in the image and likeness of God. So the coin, it's got Caesar's image on it. Give it to Caesar. Whose image are you? That's what we need to give to God. God's image in us. I think this is very important. And the reason is that he is transforming us. He has blessed us. The psalmist just can't believe it. Um, Lord, how awesome. What a wonderful thing. What You've created the universe and all of that. And what are, what are we? Go out at night on a starry night and look around at the universe and think about how important you are. Think about all human history from the beginning of time all into the future. How important, how significant is your life? It's not much. And the psalmist looks at that and he says, God, when I consider these things, what you've done, what is man, what is a person that you are even thoughtful of us or even care about us? But he goes on there in Psalm 8 and says, you've created him a little lower than the what? That's what the translation says. That's not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says God. Elohim. It's the same word that we use for God. You created him a little bit lower than God or the angels um, because we are bearing God's image. Have you ever wondered... Why Satan hates us so much? You ever wonder? The angels are created beings. As far as we know, they're not created in the image of God. You are. Paul makes some interesting statements here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. He's talking about lawsuits among, among Christian people, Christians suing other Christians, and going to the secular courts to make that kind of a, a thing, right? So as Christians, we understand that, don't we? As Christians, where do we want to be married? In church, Right? At least the older generation did. Church, at least you want the, the church's approval. If you have a minister there, it's because you're wanting uh, him to re be representing God as being part of your marriage vows. Where do we get divorce? We don't usually go to the church. Right? And you don't ask the pastor to be present. Well, Paul's talking about lawsuits among Christians, and he says... What are you doing? What kind of a witness, what kind of a testimony is that to, to the world and unbelievers? And then he says this. Do you not know that the saints 
will judge the world? Wow. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And he goes even farther. Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? You're going to judge angels? What gives you or me the audacity, the arrogance to make a statement like that? When God created Adam and Eve, <clears throat> created them in his image, and what did he do with them? He put them in the world, and he put everything, all life, under their authority. Why? Because they were created in the image and likeness of God. They were his representatives in this world. That's what we blew when we sinned in, in Eden. But that authority, that power is still there. And he says, one day we will judge angels. So Lucifer, um, one of the most beautiful, powerful angels, one of the ones who was closest to God, saw this as a threat. Hebrews talks about it, doesn't it? To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. But through the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, he gave us the right to be called children of God. And this is what John was writing about in the letter. What lavishment God has given to you and me to be called children of God. And then John says, that's what we are. He didn't say that's not what we're going to be. He said, that's what we are. And he's in the process of changing us more and more into that image. So Satan sees you as a threat. That's why he hates you. That's why he wants to destroy you. Because you and I bear the image of God and he never will. So God's love. Whose portrait do people see when they look at you? Image of Caesar? Image of sport? Image of popularity? Image of entertainment? Image of wealth? Image of power? Image of Christ. What do they see? What do we see when we see ourselves? And so God, in his grace and his mercy, says we need to be careful who we look like. And just a couple of quick verses here to show you what I'm talking about. When they attacked Jesus and asked him about his authority, they were getting ready to stone him because he claimed to be the Son of God. This is in John 10. And in John 10, as they're picking up big stones to kill him, he quotes to them Psalm 82. Psalm 82.1, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. He's talking now about the leadership of Israel. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And he goes on and begins asking those questions because they're having to give an accountability of their stewardship. And then he says in verse 5, 
uh, sorry, verse 6. I said, you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. So he's calling them to accountability because they're abusing their gifts and their abilities that God gave them. Um, he entrusts them with that responsibility and they're abusing it. And so he says, I called you gods, sons of the Most High, which is what John and Paul and James is saying, that's us as Christian people, children of God. And so Jesus says, if God calls those people gods, why are you upset if I say I'm the son of God? That was the question that he asked, which they could not answer. And this is kind of the way it works. In Exodus chapter 4, you remember, uh, this is the part of the account of God's call for Moses. And, and uh, Moses is 80 years old now. 80 years old. He's been for 40 years on the backside of the desert. Uh, I, always, I always think that's a funny statement. It's not just the desert, it's the backside of the desert. <laughs> you know, this is my best side. <laughs> anyway, it's the backside of the desert. And he's been there for 40 years, and he's been predominantly with, uh, with the cattle and out in the wild animals and stuff out in the middle of the desert trying to find enough food for the goats to eat for 40 years. All of his fine training, his, uh, his great ability to speak and all of that, 40 years later, he hadn't used it for 40 years. It's pretty well gone. Um, let me, how would you like to take a test that you studied for 40 years earlier? <laughs> It, and you hadn't given it a thought since. It would be pretty difficult. So he keeps coming up with these excuses. Finally, he says in chapter 4 of Exodus, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you've spoken to me. I'm slow of speech and tongue. God says, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. Moses says, Lord, please send somebody else. So, um, God was upset with him. He was angry with him. He said, okay, tell you what. What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? It means he's a priest. I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. Now listen to what he says carefully. You, will, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and I will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. Moses, you're going to be God to Aaron. Aaron's going to be your prophet. So how does this work? Well, we see in Exodus chapter 7, they go to Pharaoh, and God says, Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. He tells him. In the book of Acts, Paul and Silas, they go to one of these cities, and um, they do, there was a miracle, and everybody said, it's Zeus and Hermes. <laughs> Zeus is the God and Hermes is the speaker. Come on. And so the, they got the priest from the temple of Zeus and the priest from the temple of Hermes and they've got the ox and they've got all the flowers and the garlands and everybody's coming out of town and they're going to slaughter this bull to Zeus and Hermes. They said, 
Barnabas, he's this great guy with a red beard and all that. That's Zeus, and her and Paul was doing most of the speaking, and and uh, Hermes was the the spokesman, the prophet of the gods. So Barnabas and Paul, Zeus and Hermes, <laughs> and it took them a hard. They had a hard time getting him to not do that. In the end, they persecuted him. <laughs> so it went from worship to let's kill these guys. <laughs> kind of thing, but that's the kind of thing that's going on. So God places Adam and Eve in the garden as his representatives with his authority, his power, created in the image and likeness of God, and he entrusts the whole creation of the earth, entrusts it to them. So people sinned, so God called certain anointed ones, uh, like Moses and Aaron, his image reflected in them. They are his representatives. And so then we come to First Corinthians 5.17. Second Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation... This is more than reformation. This is transformation. New creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then he comes down in verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So... The task as Christians, as we're becoming more and more like him, as we become, hold the image of Christ in clearer and clearer ways, then it becomes a transformation. We are becoming more and more like that image. And while that is going on, we take the position of Moses and Aaron. We are God's ambassadors. God is making his appeal to this community through you or it doesn't happen God makes his appeal to this community through the Christians in this community or it does not happen we are Christ's ambassadors God's changing us and then he's going to use us to change the rest of the community like Moses like Aaron and like Moses many of us say wait a minute I'm not qualified I'm not able to do this send somebody else God said no I've chosen you you didn't choose me I chose you if you're here this morning it's because God chose you we may think well it's because I didn't have nothing else to do (laughs) I'm supposed to go so I better go or you know somebody will think funny about me if I don't show up no God is he's behind all that he's brought us here because he's wanting to continue this process transformation more and more increasingly like him that the witness to the community becomes greater and greater and that's what we are so how do we know what we look like as Christians we know what we look like by looking to Christ And as we look to Christ, we become more and more, day by day, like him. He's a whole lot better looking than most of us. 
and we're becoming like him. And when that happens, then the beauty and the grace of God will be manifest, revealed in us and through us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, what a miraculous, gracious thing that you've bestowed upon us that because of your love through the gift of your Son and through the gift of your Spirit, we might be called the children of God. The miracle of miracles is that's what we are because of you. And day by day, you're working in us to make that image of Christ shine greater and stronger, more powerfully through us. Help us, Lord, to look to you with clear, undivided focus. That as we behold you in your glory, that you're at work transforming us from who we are into what you've created us to be. We give you thanks, Lord, that we're part of that process even today. And that the thing about it is that we should be closer to you today than we were yesterday. And tomorrow we should be even closer yet. So, Lord, we ask that you would work that within us, changing us from the inside out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.